listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. I lived in Houston during the rise of Enron, and one of the best of the many books written on the company's failure was The Smartest Guys in the Room, co-authored by today's Global IQ guest, investigative journalist Bethany McLean. Listeners may recall her reporting for Fortune, and especially the article that appeared in March 2001 titled, Is Enron Overpriced?, which raised so many red flags that turned out to be true, leading to the company's eventual bankruptcy some nine months later. Today, Bethany is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Her latest book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World, which was published this past September, could not be more timely given the wide fluctuations now evidenced in global oil markets. Let's be specific. This past Friday, the price of West Texas Intermediate crude fell to $50.42 a barrel, its lowest price since October 2017. Now, just 10 days away from the next meeting of OPEC, and in light of the recent drop in oil prices, you can be sure that at the top of the agenda will be whether or not to cut OPEC production, and if so, by how much. Welcome, Bethany. It's really great to have you with us, especially now. Thank you so much for having me. So what do you think will be the outcome at the upcoming OPEC meeting in Vienna? I think it's really hard to predict that sort of thing. What I think is interesting is that it's clear the oil market is in a time that we haven't seen before, the onslaught of U.S. shale, and it really is an onslaught, is just changing the global picture dramatically. But you have so many breakdowns across a wide variety of areas from the cooperation between Russia and Saudi Arabia that has enabled production cuts in the past to where Saudi Arabia stands and its need for higher oil prices as well. I guess as I think about it, I would be surprised if there aren't production cuts, but Saudi Arabia has a long history in this kind of thing, and it's very hard for outsiders to predict what the kingdom will do. And as you say in your book, as have many others, if you say you know what's going to happen, you probably really don't because it's so unpredictable. The difficulty of predicting not only the price of oil, but the future of the shale revolution as well, because most people who have tried to do it have been wrong. And all you need to do is look back a decade ago to the hand-wringing over U.S. shortages of oil and natural gas that everybody thought was going to be the status quo for the future, and it turned out absolutely not to be the case. <laughs> and let's not forget Matt Simmons' famous projection about peak oil. And, you know, sometimes just when we start to think that's wrong, <laughs> that may have a rebirth at some point. There are fears that because of the onslaught of shale and cheaper supply, that a number of projects, um, longer-term projects, have been delayed or put on hold, and that we may be back to impending fears of a shortage just when everybody starts to think that that's not possible. Well, help us put this in perspective. How much oil at its peak was the U.S. importing, and how much are we importing now? Well, right now we are exporting more than we import, which is really pretty stunning if you think about it. And in November, the U.S. surpassed Saudi Arabia and Russia to become the world's largest producer of crude oil. So but we're still importing a chunk of our needs, even at its best if you define energy independence as North American energy independence, we still need to import oil. I'd like you to talk about that a bit more because one hears is the United States energy independent? And can we be? Also, is it really in our best interest to be in such a position? Well, it's funny. I came to think of energy independence as, as a flawed concept in the sense that even if we could 
produce enough oil to meet our needs, and nobody thinks we're going to get there. Maybe North American energy independence, as I said, but not within the U.S. But even if we could, we live in a global economy, and the price of oil is set on world markets. The U.S. ability to set the, the price of oil went away with the Texas Railroad Commission's power over oil pricing back in the 1970s, right? And so U.S. consumers, what we pay at the pump is going to be dependent on events around the world, whether we like it or not. So that's one thing. But then secondly, we're also in a global economy where a lot of the goods we import are from Asian countries that themselves are heavily dependent on Middle Eastern oil. So this idea that you could say we're producing so much oil, we don't need the Middle East is just it's very flawed. Energy independence is one of those phrases that sounds so grand and has been around for so many years that you think it must mean something. But once you start to think about what it actually means, it means a lot less than the words are cracked up to be. I think you can see that in the wake of the response to Jamal Khashoggi. Nobody is saying, oh, American energy independence. We don't need Saudi Arabia. Who cares about what just happened there, right? Instead, we're all very fixated on Saudi Arabia and what our relationship with them is. And it turns out Saudi money is sprinkled throughout Silicon Valley in a major way. I mean, the world is a complicated place today. It's not as simple as we don't need their oil, we don't need them. Well, you read my mind because I wanted to turn now to Saudi Arabia. You reference in the book a study by the Baker Institute at Rice University, which focused on Saudi Arabia's public spending. Given that the spending continues to be considerable, what can we expect now, especially given the reforms that MBS has tried to put in place? What price does Saudi Arabia need? Well, the latest numbers I saw was somewhere in the ranges of 80 to $90 a barrel. And that's one of the more fascinating concepts to me, this concept of a fiscal break even, because yes, Saudi Arabia can get a barrel of oil out of the ground for less money than basically any place else. But when you layer in the huge cost of subsidizing their state that has built up during the years of high oil prices, their cost is actually quite high. You tend to think if you're in some limited view of the world, you think, oh, great for America, Saudi Arabia's society is breaking down, but that really isn't so great for America. So I think there's somebody said to me, um, and I quote in the book, that at a certain price per barrel of oil, places in the world start to break. And I think that's true, and it's not good for anyone who wants to see stability. And the price changes so much. I remember when an independent was looking at a price of, say, 80 or $90 for it to be profitable uh, for shale production and fracking. Now it's what, $30, $40? Well, it's really hard to say. So the concept of the break-even in the U.S. is a slippery number two. And the reason why is that, for one thing, you'll see companies say, and I read in a Bloomberg piece, that companies can now make money with $30 of barrel oil. And yet when you go from what companies say the returns on individual wells are to what the corporate financial statements show, there's a big difference. There, very few companies are actually producing cash flow. And so they say they can make money at $30 a barrel, but what does that mean? Does that mean at the well? If that's the break-even price, why does that not translate into profits at the corporate level? So that's one point. A second point is this concept known as high grading, which is after the crash in 2014, 2015, when the industry really pulled back, companies began drilling their very, very best sites first. And so there's a big question about how many of those really good sites there are. So even if the break-even is at $30 a barrel in the best places in the Permian, what does that actually mean for other spots? And then the third component of this is service costs. So some portion of the break-even cost is variable, right? And as the price of oil rises or falls, service costs tend to rise or fall. That can wipe out a chunk of what people thought were, were permanent cost savings. And one of the risks, too, isn't it, that the depletion rates, which are so much higher. Right. 
Exactly. And that's one of the reasons that the industry hasn't been able to make money is that the depletion rates are so much higher on fracked wells than are on vertical wells. So particularly if you're a publicly traded company and you have to keep showing growth. Can you be more specific? What is the depletion rate on average? It really depends on which well you're talking about where there is no average. Aubrey McClendon had started this concept of manufacturing that sort of all shale wells are alike and all you have to do is manufacture. And it's really not true. Now, let's just take a moment and can you tell our listeners who he was just briefly? So Aubrey McClendon was the CEO of Chesapeake Energy. And I focused on him in my book because the book is really about how important capital is to the fracking industry. And while Aubrey wasn't the technological pioneer of shale, he was the guy who figured out how to get capital for shale. He managed to go around the globe and get investors everywhere to give billions of dollars to U.S. shale. But And he had this concept known as manufacturing mode, the idea being that all shale wells were sort of alike and you could just stamp them out. And geologists will tell you that's just not true. So the decline rate varies by wells, but it's as much as 80%, particularly in the Bakken region in year two meaning that the well produces 80% less oil in year two than it did in year one. So you're getting all your oil in a front-end loaded fashion, meaning that if you need to keep your production growing or constant, then you're going to be constantly on a capital treadmill of having to reinvest. We just have a few more minutes, and I want to ask you about a major thesis and argument that you have in the book about the reliance on fracking on private equity particularly interest rates. Yeah, so two components there. One is that there's a direct link between fracking and the financial crisis in that if the Federal Reserve hadn't slashed interest rates so dramatically in the wake of the financial crisis, thereby ushering in this era of super cheap debt, it's unclear how big the fracking revolution would be. It would have gotten started for sure, but the size is unclear because frackers are so dependent on these immense amounts of cheap capital. And then the second component, which is related to low interest rates, has been private equity. So in a world devoid of growth, and particularly when fixed income investments don't make a return, pension funds have increasingly been putting money into private equity firms, which in turn have invested heavily in shale production. So I saw an estimate that about a third of the drilling in the Permian Basin is being done by private equity-backed companies. That's another component of this. And my point in the book really is just that the financial flows are very important to this industry. It has a lot to do with Wall Street, not just with entrepreneurship down in Texas. But now that the cost of production has gone down so much, are they less susceptible to interest rate swings? Yes. I think that interest rates rising is not at all going to bankrupt the industry, right? It's going to make it a little harder to make money. But what the unforeseeable impact of that is what that will do to the flows of capital. In other words, if interest rates rise, will private equity firms keep shoveling capital into shale companies? And then if they don't, what does that mean for production figures? You also warn in the book that the U.S. is falling behind and is being outspent by others on the development of renewables, particularly with China and amazingly now even Saudi Arabia. What do you think it will take for the United States to finally wean itself from hydrocarbons? An investor I know well, a guy named Jeremy Grantham in Boston, who's a very smart investor, calls fracking a red herring because his fear is that by focusing on fracking and sort of beating our chest about this concept of American energy independence, we're risking falling further behind. It's really almost our own oil curse, isn't it? Right, and I think that's a big risk. In an ideal world, you'd want to see us powering forward, no pun intended, on all fronts, right? Yes, by all means, maximize the value of shale. But keep in mind 
some humility about how much of shale production is enabled by cheap capital and the willingness of the markets to finance money-losing companies. Keep in mind that other countries around the world also have shale for multiple reasons. They've been slower to develop it, but they have it. So it's not like the U.S. has been uniquely blessed with a resource. We're just using ours before everybody else. And by all means, move ahead rapidly on renewable energy so that we don't risk being behind in the world as it's going to be and priding ourselves on being you know, winners in the world as it was. Sounds like a good prescription. But before we go, could you tell our listeners a little about the book and specifically Columbia Global Reports? The book, I'm holding it now, it's about 130 pages and took me about two hours to read. And I have to tell you that I've read a lot of books about the oil and gas industry, and you were able to summarize a very complicated industry remarkably well. What is Columbia Global Reports? Well, thank you, first of all, for the really lovely compliment. So Columbia Global Reports is a relatively new publisher started by Columbia University in New York. And the idea was that with the decline in the journalism industry nationally, that they would fund many books on topics of global importance that perhaps weren't getting the coverage that they would have in a different era. So these are meant to be unimportant topics, but they're also meant to be relatively short reads, two to three hours on something that is just important to all of our future, but that people may not be getting the information that they would have in a different era. So that's the founding principle behind Columbia Global Reports. And for somebody like me, it's a great opportunity to take a topic. I always thought, you know, I was watching all the hysteria about the latest dry cleaning app coming out of Silicon Valley and, you know, how this was changing the world. (laughs) I thought, well, no, 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 this stuff's going on down in Texas and in other parts of the country is what's changing the world. And so for somebody like me who was really interested in this topic, it was the perfect opportunity to be able to explore it in an in-depth way that still hopefully is easily readable and not overwhelming. Well, indeed it is. And thank you so much for your contribution. You certainly did get a great review in the Financial Times. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Thanks again for being with us. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Global IQ Minute, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our weekly podcast on Apple Music or your preferred app. Have a great day. And again, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.